The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Empire, 
which was now transcending some of the older boundaries, people of uh, divergent cultures were beginning to have contact with each other. And uh, more and more, as time progressed, there was a tendency for ideas to mix. And when we speak about the Hellenistic religions, we are really talking about the, the influence, the way in which both the Greco-Roman, on the one hand, and the Middle Eastern approaches to life were beginning to merge in some way. Whenever you have that kind of development, uh, it creates problems of various sorts. People get upset. Uh, one of the Roman, uh, Roman writers in the second century was complaining about uh, life in Rome, which is like New York now. People speaking all kinds of languages and what have you. And uh, he made some reference to uh, that the Orontes has now poured into the Tiber. The Orontes is a river in uh, Syria and poured into the Tiber, the, uh, the river in Rome. Uh, his way of saying, uh, you know, let's get rid of all these uh, unwanted people, let's, let's try to preserve the pure Roman uh, culture. But the point is that uh, he just couldn't avoid it. Contacts were too numerous, too uh, fundamental. And uh, one of the ways in which you see that expressing itself is in the, uh, in the mysteries or the mystery religions. Unfortunately, we don't really know all that much about the mystery religions. What do you think they're called? Mystery. Uh, <laughs> Normally, the people who were part of these groups were sworn to secrecy. And uh, you don't have writings which give expression to the belief system or the practices uh, that is written by the people themselves. Now, what happened occasionally was that you might have a, uh, an individual who was part of one of these groups, and uh, this person either they convert to Christianity, or otherwise uh, get soured on the group and uh, tries to get even with them by you know, disclosing these so-called mysteries. And uh, that always creates a little bit of a problem because now you're getting information from a, uh, a non-sympathetic party, and you're not always sure how much uh, confidence to place on that. Archaeological work has uh, helped a bit in discovering various kinds of uh, ritual remains, and uh, you also do get occasionally a little bit of information from uh, more quote-unquote objective people from the Asian world who might have been able to find out a little bit about these uh, groups. But uh, it's important for you to appreciate this element that I mentioned in an earlier uh, context, uh, syncretism. The uh, tendency to adopt a variety of viewpoints. You might have some kind of a cultural or religious movement that, as it goes from one geographical area to another, uh, tends to merge with whatever the local practices and, and the belief systems of that region might have been. It is a, a characteristic 
of this period, and more particularly characteristic of the mystery religions. One of, of the uh, ways in which you can identify mystery religions is because it, it is made up of a variety of viewpoints, a merging of uh, ideas characteristic of uh, diverse geographical areas. Another point about the uh, mystery religions uh, has to do with its geographical expansion. Now, among the, um, the better known religions, and again, Lose gives you a bit of information about this, and also the article in the Anchor uh, Bible Dictionary, uh, the article should be photocopied and preserved. And uh, personally, I think that Lose's descriptions are quite satisfactory, but maybe just a little bit dated in a couple of details. And that's why I wanted you to uh, be exposed to these more up-to-date articles with up-to-date bibliography, uh, maybe making aware of some of the more current issues, uh, both in, uh, in terms of literary religions and more specifically Gnosticism. But um, you can get more information about that uh, in, in the readings, but the, the better-known literary religions that were specifically Hellenistic, and maybe parenthetically, I need to make a comment here. The, the concept of a mystery religion did not originate during this period. Already in the classical Greek period, you have, for example, the Eleusinian mysteries, and they did not necessarily die out. They, they would have been uh, still attractive to some groups even in the first century. But uh, what I'm more interested in is the, uh, the kind of religion ex religious expression that uh, takes shape during this period specifically because of uh, the cultural changes that were taking place. And among these, one of the uh, better known was the cult of Cybele or Cybele in Asia Minor. Sometimes spelled with a K, uh, but either way, better pronunciation is Kaibili. And uh, this was a goddess. There was a, a connection with uh, the god Attis, all kinds of myths uh, which were given expression in the rituals, the rituals of mutilation, including uh, the castration of some of the uh, worshippers. And um, the, the worship of Cybele or Cybele, also known as uh, the Great Mother, Great Mother, became very influential even in Rome. Uh, I suppose that is true more in the second century. But I'm just trying to communicate to you that even though the, the cult is more or less native to uh, Asia Minor, particularly the southern part. Nevertheless, you have people throughout the uh, empire, including the capital of the empire, adopting this uh, kind of religious expression. You have also the uh, rights of uh, Isis and Osiris. Isis and Osiris. Uh, Isis the goddess and Osiris was her brother and lover and all kinds of things also associated with that. A very popular religion in Egypt, but also a religion that was rather highly developed in 
terms of, of its conditions. And uh, so it was an intriguing uh, way of uh, worshipping that attracted people from other parts of the world. And the other very important uh, religion, the uh, religion of Mithras, uh, is God. From uh, the further eastern sections, Persia and so on, which uh, had a strong military <coughs> flavor to it, and remains of this particular movement that could be found as far away as England. It's a very powerful, very attractive, at least to some segments of the population, uh, way of life that uh, developed very, very quickly as it became uh, uh, rather uh, powerful in many respects. Now, one of the distinctives of these uh, religious uh, movements, well, I have already commented on, on this matter of syncretism, but in addition to that, and uh, as I have already suggested, these religions had an awful lot to say about guilt, about the sense of uh, inadequacy, about the need to find uh, salvation. You see, the terminology of salvation is something that characterizes these religions, these groups, these movements, over against the kind of language and expression that you find in the philosophies. Because the, the moment you speak about salvation, you're acknowledging that you have a problem and that someone has to take care of that problem for you in some way. Somebody has to save you, in other words. Uh, that, that's not quite the way that the Hellenistic philosophers would have thought normally. But uh, the, the Hellenistic religions appeal to individuals who had that sense of guilt and dependence, some consciousness of sin and of need to be delivered from, from their situation. You can also see, although here again this is a generalization, but you can also see why the mystery religions might have been more prominent among rural uh, groups than the uh, sophisticated societies in, in the uh, cities. Again, you cannot make sharp distinctions here, but uh, there is some general truth to that. These religions also had a uh, strong emphasis on symbology, uh, and particularly sensual symbolism. And what I mean by that is anything that might be striking to the senses. That is why. Uh, in some of these, you might have the sacrifice of a bull and the worshiper being drenched in the blood of the, uh, of the bull. I think part of this was disgusting to a lot of people even back then. But uh, you see, that's probably a sensation of smell that you not easily forget. And uh, that's part of what's going on. A, there's a sort of a dramatic element to the way worship was conducted that that forced these sensory experiences upon the worshiper.
other things that we could uh, mention in, in connection with uh, what was distinctive to these uh, various groups. Symbolism, sense of dependence, and this more or less sacramental flavor that I was just talking about. Yeah? They, um, I don't know, they, uh, you're asking whether the, uh, the worshippers in these groups use drugs as part of their worship experience? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do not recall that in descriptions of these particular ones, like Sabili uh, uh, and Isis and Paris and so on, the use of drugs to stimulate the, the worship experience uh, was a prominent feature. At least I don't remember reading that kind of thing. But I, I wouldn't want to exclude it. And uh, it may be that um, I, I need to double-check, but I don't recall that that was a major factor. Yeah. Uh, Mithras went actually in the opposite direction. It was kind of a rejection of all of the uh, revelry and the indulgences. It was more almost, in many respects, exceeded. It was very uh, dry and almost harsh in some ways. Yeah. yeah, some of the military flavor of very strict discipline in their lives uh, which would probably lie any kind of thought. Uh, yeah. No, I guess when I spoke of sensory experience, I was thinking more in terms of, you know, you have meals together, you eat, you have uh, various means of uh, creating uh, scents and smells in, in, the, uh, in the worship, fashion uh, or whatever, uh, touching, that, that kind of thing. Not necessarily the intake of drugs, but, but maybe that was part of some of the would you consider like emotionalism part of the whole sexual experience? Oh, sure. sure. So, so would the church uh, in some way uh, lash out and say, you know, your Christian experience should not should not be sensual in any area, like almost a kind of a, a backlash of, of seeing of seeing a cultic kind of behavior concentrate on sensuality, and then would the church kind of say, well, this is all bad now? Essential experience with God. No, uh, not all bad because again, part of part of the sensory experience I'm talking about is, and, and I'll say a little bit more about that when I speak about the relationship to the Testament here. But for example, partaking of a meal in connection with with worship, uh, that was very important for the early church, and they they did not reject that, but they would certainly feel that uh, some of these groups were taking this to an extreme. And, uh, and of course, affected by you know, a particular way of looking at, at God in the world that cannot be uh, accepted by the church. I think in the uh, Alicidian Mysteries there was a narcotic element. Yeah, uh, and of course, in the uh, uh, worship of Dionysus, also, the wine was a very important element. Yeah, with the uh, migration deal of the Grand and the uh, Eastern philosophies did that as well as the Hinduism uh, and Buddhism. That part of that. Was that gotten into that? No, there wasn't as much contact going quite that far. 
well-defined and uh, really quite influential religious uh, movement that it deserves separate treatment and uh, it, I think it does need to be uh, distinguished uh, in some respects from your run-of-the-mill mystery religion. Here again, uh, specifically with regard to Gnosticism, most of the information we have had in the past comes from opponents of the religion, in particular the Christian uh, fathers of the first couple of centuries, who had a lot of conflicts with the Gnostics. And, um, and I don't mean necessarily that these Christian fathers were being dishonest in their uh, handling of the material, but obviously when you're in a position of conflict trying to um, refute somebody that you think may be very uh, dangerous, you don't try to put them in the best possible light and uh, you may not give all the information that you might need to be able to, to come up with a balanced uh, understanding of these people. But nevertheless, uh, the truth is that when you read the writings of uh, Irenaeus or uh, Origen and a few other uh, early fathers, you do get a, a fairly uh, good bit of information about the way that, that the Gnostics uh, looked at life and the world and the universe and the relationship to God and so on. But then in the late 1940s of the century, there was a discovery in uh, Egypt, this Nag Hammadi, uh, which brought to light numerous writings from some kind of Christian Gnostic uh, group or groups and uh, for the first time, really, we had direct contact with the writings, with the ideas of these people. Now, a lot of, a lot of you maybe have heard of the, uh, of the Gospel of Thomas, so-called. The Gospel of Thomas has all kinds of uh, little sayings supposedly coming from Jesus, but with a distinctly Gnostic flavor. And uh, there has been a lot of discussion and debate about uh, that uh, writing and whether or not it preserves any uh, genuine sayings of Jesus and this and the other. But apart from that question, there are many other writings among, among the uh, books that were discovered here that um, uh, shed light that we did not have before regarding uh, the Gnostics. The most important uh, feature, I think, fundamental of Gnosticism is what we call dualism. Dualism not peculiar to Gnosticism. In fact, it's a very, very common way of looking at the world. Maybe everybody is a dualist in, to one degree or another. But um, for Gnosticism, perhaps under some Persian influence, because uh, you know, you've heard of Zoroastrianism, um, which also put quite a bit of emphasis on this idea. Uh, for Gnosticism, it was a guiding principle and in, in effect it um, dictated much of what they believed anyway, regardless of, of the specific issue that you may be uh, interested in. Dualism 
philosophically involves the view that there are two principles that operate in the universe. The principle, principles of good and evil, that both of these principles are eternal and uh, self-contained, if you will. And uh, moreover, that the principle of evil manifests itself in that which is material, whereas the principle of, of what is good manifests itself in what is not material. To be even more specific, the body uh, is a manifestation of the evil principle, whereas the spirit is a manifestation of the uh, principle of good. Now, I made this passing remark to the effect that dualism is found uh, all over the place. Uh, you can see that in much of Greek philosophy, uh, which uh, has uh, some contempt for the body. One of the better known sayings in, in among the ancient Greeks was soma sema, the body is a tomb. The body is a tomb. Uh, the idea being that your existence in the body is viewed as a prison, as something that holds you down in terms of of, of the good that you could be holds you, holds you down, so that death releases you from the body. Uh, so, so the whole, even even the conception of um, the um, uh, the uh, existence of the soul beyond death, the afterlife, was specifically perceived as something which the body has no connection with. In fact, if it did, it would just mess up the whole thing. The immortality of the soul in that sense, you hope you understand, is quite a, a non-Christian understanding. Over against this kind of dualism, of course, you have the, um, the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective, uh, that says that there's only one eternal principle, and that's God himself. It's a personal being. And that uh, evil is not something that has some kind of independent existence outside of the will and the purposes of God. Moreover, the world that God is set to create is a good world. If there's anything in, the, in chapter 1 of Genesis that uh, uh, you know, comes at you as a recurring principle is that God saw what he did and behold it was good. And when you get to, to the last day, and behold, it was very good. Tov me'od. And the part of the idea, of course, is to prepare the way for chapter 3. So that by the time you get to chapter 3 and you read about the fall, you know that you cannot blame God for it because the world that God made was good. And yet it is clear also that the evil that comes into the world is not somehow a, a competing God, you see, uh, there's this equal tension uh, between the good and the evil that the Gnostics uh, would have uh, perceived. Moreover, and uh, talk about practical implications, someone 
who is committed to this kind of dualistic philosophy could give expression to it in two very different ways. There is the individual who says, all right, the body is bad, the spirit is good, therefore what I need to do is to uh, put the body down so that the immaterial part of me will blossom. And uh, this might include, uh, well, we, we speak of, um, of asceticism, asceticism, as, um, you know, to describe this point of view, an ascetic is someone who uh, denies himself or herself uh, any kind of uh, comfort or pleasure uh, on the, usually, on the belief that by that kind of rigorous life, you are actually hurting the body in a way that helps the spirit or the soul. This business of hurting could be quite uh, taken quite literally. Uh, you sleep on rocks or, or you subject yourself to painful experiences. Uh, abstain from eating meat because that is viewed again as, as part of, of uh, manifestation of evil. Uh, abstain from sexual relationships as part of, of the body and so on. But there were other people who were also committed to a dualistic uh, view of the world who would take quite the opposite viewpoint. Their, their approach was something like this. Ah, the spirit is good, the body is bad, and these two are completely different things. And what really counts is the spirit. Therefore, I can do anything I want with the body. And who cares? Because the only thing that really matters is the spirit, you see. And therefore, instead of asceticism, you have libertinism. Libertinism, uh, the approach that says, well, I'm completely free to do whatever I want with the body, and uh, who cares? What does it matter? It's just the body. It is possible, incidentally, that when first, in, in First John, you read the statement, uh, you know, about uh, don't let anybody say that um, I have no sin. Some people believe that what is going on is some sort of pre-Gnostic heresy in the churches to whom John is writing. People who deny that they're sinful. Why? Not because they live exemplary lives, but because they claim that what I'm doing is just a bodily thing. matters nothing. What really counts is the spirit. And uh, you see, at that point, I am not uh, guilty. I, I have no sin. Um, you find other expressions of this dualistic philosophy among the early Christians. I'm not saying that they were Gnostics. I'm just trying to uh, show you how easy these things uh, take shape. When you read 1 Corinthians, you find that Paul is dealing within the same church, on the one hand, with some of these Christians, you know, I think I mentioned that before, who have no misgivings whatever about going to the temple prostitutes, total sexual abandon, it seemed like. And on the other hand, 
people who thought that uh, any kind of physical relationship was bad. You shouldn't marry. If you're married, you, you should abstain from sexual relationships. How could both of these exist within the same community? And uh, you get your answer more or less indirectly when you get to chapter 15, and you find out that these people are denying the resurrection of the body. See, uh, both groups, by having a contempt for the body, are really giving expression to this dualistic uh, way of life. And uh, some of them follow the ascetic route, others follow the libertine route. Now, does that mean, however, that uh, we have traces of Gnosticism in the New Testament, or at least in the people uh, that the New Testament writers are talking about or addressing? And the answer is probably uh, no. This has been one of the great debates in, um, in, in biblical scholarship. Uh, with regard to Gnosticism specifically, you need to appreciate that it wasn't until the second century that you have the well-defined kind of religious movement that you find now in, in these documents from Nag Hammadi and, and whatever. And that um, it is quite a um, misstep, historically speaking, to assume that some of these highly developed religious ideas were already present in the New Testament, New Testament period in the first century. What happens is that there are certain characteristics of a more general nature that, of course, were present in the first century and even before then. And you may see some of that reflected in comments that the New Testament writers make when they are opposing viewpoints or whatever. Uh, for that reason, there are a number of scholars who prefer to make a distinction between Gnosticism, as such, maybe with a capital G, if you will, and on the other hand, Gnosis, Gnosis, by itself. See, Gnosis would be the more general term. Some people prefer the term incipient Gnosticism. It isn't quite the religion that you find in the second century, but but you see some of the concerns and some of the emphases that would eventually develop into that uh, uh, self-conscious and self-defined Gnostic viewpoint. You remember the, the term gnosis, of course, is a Greek word for knowledge, and uh, that alone tells you a fair amount about uh, Gnosticism and, in fact, also about the other mystery religions because they also spoke quite a bit about gnosis. And for them, Gnosis, uh, knowledge, was a way of speaking about salvation. Only that this salvation and this knowledge is not just some kind of intellectual approach. It has to do with the experience of basically merging into the deity. Uh, you have some explicit references uh, to becoming God. Uh, you go through a number of stages in your spiritual pilgrimage or whatever, and you're really ascending these levels of gnosis or knowledge until you reach that last final experience of, uh, of becoming divine in some sense.
some of you have heard of a rather famous uh, New Testament scholar named Rudolf Bultmann. Bultmann uh, was really the most prominent uh, New Testament scholar in the, um, or oh, he began his work in the 20s, but in the 30s and 40s and even into the 50s, uh, he was regarded as, as the most influential New Testament scholar, uh, really quite radical in his views. He came to the New Testament from the point of view of so-called comparative religions or the history of religion school. The history of religions attempted to understand the religions, particularly of antiquity, in comparison one with the other. And then they would look at the New Testament and Christianity and seek to understand it also as just one of these religions. And uh, Bultmann uh, put a lot of emphasis on Gnosticism as a source, he believed, for explaining the development of Christianity. For example, in Gnosticism, there's a, a myth, the so-called the Redeemer myth, of some being who comes from that other spirit world and uh, in some way or another comes to try to redeem uh, the, uh, his, those who are his from, from down here. And so Bulman thought, ah, you see, that's where the story about the Incarnation came from. Um, and uh, people would make comments about, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper over against the uh, meal rituals of the mystery religions, or baptism in Christianity over against the uh, washing rituals, and um, the use of the term Lord uh, in comparison with something similar ha that happened in the, the religion of uh, Adonis in, in Syria, and, and so on. But the problem, you see, is that... Um, in the first place, the only evidence that you have for, say, this uh, Redeemer myth is in the second century. You don't have any evidence of that in the first century, whereas the New Testament writers were produced in the first century. In the second place, everybody acknowledges that Gnosticism and these other mystery uh, religions were syncretistic in character, syncretistic in character, Whereas Christianity, like Judaism, was exclusivistic and is exclusivistic in character. When, uh, when the Bible speaks about uh, uh, no, no other name is given uh, to men under heaven because uh, there's not salvation anywhere else, or when Jesus speaks about he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him, the very, almost by definition, uh, Christianity is saying you, you've got to uh, give up your commitments and your allegiance to other gods uh, to, to receive the gospel. Now, if, if you have Christianity in the first century and Gnosticism in the second century, Christianity is exclusivistic, Gnosticism is syncretistic. Who do you think borrowed from whom? It's really quite elementary in some respects. Uh, and uh, you need to appreciate that um, uh, there is simply not persuasive evidence to try to understand the distinctives of the, of the gospel message by appealing to some of these Gnostic ideas. Now, in more general terms, um, you do find certain parallels, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and so on, but what we need to appreciate is that these 
these are common, um, common features of life. Everybody eats, everybody washes. Most people wash. Uh, and these things by, by themselves take on a particular significance that makes, makes them absolutely appropriate uh, as symbols of uh, nourishment, of fellowship, of uh, being cleansed. And so it would be surprising if, if different groups didn't come up with, with similar uh, symbols uh, of, of what they believe. Sorry we took the whole time. Um, I'll say just a few more things about paganism at the beginning of the hour on Monday, and then I'll uh, allow you some time for questions.